This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So dealing with collection agents, pretty stressful. I mean, I've never had the opportunity to do that, but I can't imagine how stressful it must be. But there's got to be some things, some really important things that people can think about, uh, possibly while they're in the throes of it or before that happens and what they can do. Yeah, so absolutely, Elaine. Um, you know, without a doubt, collection agencies are probably the biggest referral source I have in, in my business at Sands & Associates because it's generally one of these calls or a series of these calls. They'll raise people's stress levels, you know, through the roof. They'll raise blood pressure, you know, cause psychological issues, physical issues. You know, it's not fun to owe people money, but it's doubly not fun when you've got somebody on the phone who's, you know, very well trained in how to talk down to you, how to make you feel small, how to threaten things that, you know, for the vast majority of cases, they will never ever follow through on. So for today's segment, I gave it a little subtitle called Breathing Lessons. The whole idea is if you get that collection call and you're starting to breathe, you know, shallowly and you just can't breathe, listen to today's segment. We're going to give you a little bit of peace of mind here that, you know, for the most part, it's all talk, no action with many collectors. So how does a collection agency even get involved with me? How do they find me? Why are they harassing me? Yeah, well, it's it's never when you're up to date on your debts, you know, unless there's been some mistake. But, you know, typically if you're up to date on your debts, you know, the bank really cares about you as a customer. They care about your client relationship. Uh, they care about your experience. And if you get, you know, one or two payments behind, the bank's going to be very nice and friendly with you. They're going to, you know, try to work with you and say, you know, we really value your business and we want to get you back on track here. Now, once you get to three months of delinquency, it's really funny because it's like you flick a, flick a switch at the bank there. Suddenly, they don't care about you as a client anymore and they get the heavy hitters involved, which is when they start to call in collection agencies. So normally after three months of delinquency. And is that there? Is that a, a typical of, of all banks that they have a three month window and then after that? All bets are off, and they're it's getting outside typical. help. Yeah, okay. I've seen anecdotally. You know, sometimes it's quicker than three months. Sometimes someone's very surprised. You know, I've owed the bank money for a long time, and I haven't heard from a collector. Well, you know, sometimes it's just they can't find you. But sure. you know, typically it's after about three months that they start to get a collector involved. Okay. And now what you got to realize is that there's a cycle here, and so it's generally it's not going to be just one collector that you're going to deal with for the whole time, unless you pay up right away to that collector. You know, typically it's going to be every two to three months if you haven't made good on this debt. Um, the collector is going to start with a barrage of emails, of letters, of phone calls. Um, they're going to start to make contact with you. Um, and then if they're not successful with you over about a two or three month period, they're going to give up and things will go silent and you'll think maybe you're in the clear again. But then it's going to start again with a new company probably the next month. Okay. And what's happening there is the bank is essentially selling your debt or you know renting out your debt or whatever, basically giving a contract to collect the debt to one collector and saying, if you don't collect this debt, give it back to me in a month or two because I'm going to get someone else involved. And they'll do that progressively for years, potentially. Wow. And, you know, sometimes it'll be a bit of a race to the bottom on collectors where the first people that they assign you to, you know, they're respectful, they're nice, they want to work with you. By the time you're at the fifth or sixth time you've been assigned, it might be a collection agency where there are 
100% based on commission, and the person on the other side of the line might be in about, about as bad of a financial situation as you are, and this is how they're trying to feed their family. Got it. So I've got some collection agents as my clients, and they're not bad people. They're just people trying to do a very difficult job. Uh, but the thing that you know they really prey on is them having all of the information about what they can do, and you having none of the information and believing everything you know just as carte blanche. Right. Even if they're telling you awful things, you know, the an average person would go, "Oh, that you can't really do that." But it's still very, very frightening. Yeah. Now there is some there. I don't know if it's good news, but there is something that uh, you can kind of hang on to. Yeah. This is the, about collection agencies. The, the biggest secret in the collection agency industry biggest secret people don't know is in general all talk no action and what I mean by that is if 10,000 people owe money 10,000 people are going to get every threat of legal action they're gonna say we're gonna take you to court we're gonna sue you we're gonna seize your wages we're gonna take your house throw you out in the street all those things whether they'll put it in writing or over the phone they will threaten that but out of those 10,000 people one will get sued okay one in 10,000 that's amazing yeah Wow, that's not a very good return if you're a collection agency. Well, it, it's a good return if you can intimidate those other 9,999 right. to do what you want them to do, do the, without yeah. you having to sue them. Exactly. Right? D- yeah, if they do what you want them to do. Yeah, and, and the reasons for it, it really comes down, if you think it through logically, is it's not worth their while for the vast majority of cases to actually sue you. Because uh, it you, does cost money to sue money. somebody. It's a long, convoluted process. So if we just go through it at a high level, so you owe somebody money, they try to collect from you, if they want to take you to court, they've got to find you first off, they've got to serve you with documents, that costs some money. They've got to hire a lawyer, or they've got to write up a statement of claim, that costs some money. They've got to show up in court. You know, maybe you'll show up or you won't, but either way, they'll, they'll probably get a judgment. But all of those cases there, all those steps, probably have taken them the low single digit thousands, if not more. If you owe somebody $5,000, they're not going to invest $10,000 to try to collect from you. It's just not going to happen. And even if you owe somebody a lot of money, and this is all the big banks as well, uh, even if you owe the big banks a lot of money, they'll still be leery to do a lawsuit against you unless they're sure that on the other side, there's actually going to be something there. And what I mean by that is if you get sued, you know, they get a judgment against you, they've won the lawsuit, you owe this money, uh, what are they going to do next? Yeah. If you don't have any assets, meaning if you don't have a house with no mortgage, if you've got a house that's already got a mortgage and you don't have much equity, well, they're not going to get any money there. Yeah. If you've got the same job you've been working at for 30 years and it's for the government, well, maybe you'd get sued because they're going to try to take your wages, but that's a very small percentage of people. A lot of people are self-employed or they move jobs. So creditors know even if they pursue you and take you to court, um, get a judgment against you, they may not be able to enforce that judgment at all. Okay, so I get the call from the collection agency. I know I owe money, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to step up and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I say, all right, well, I'll, I'll start making small payments mm-hmm. to clear my name and clear the debt. Yeah, so sometimes it can be a, a smart move. Now, first off, anything you do with a collection agency, you want to get it in writing. So if you think a collector has made some sweetheart deal with you saying, oh, you owe 5000 but give me 1250 tomorrow and we'll call it a day, make sure you've got everything in writing. This will be the time to invest a little bit of money with a legal counsel to just to make sure you're getting a full and final settlement. I've heard too many times when people have thought they've made a deal with a collection agent, they've sent the money through thinking it's full and final settlement, and the collection agent has said, well, thanks very much, but where's the other 75%? 
debt. Right. So any payments that you do make, make sure they're documented. But you're hitting on a really great point there, Elaine, um, in that sometimes collection agents, so there's often a good cop, bad cop situation. And, you know, obviously the bad cop is you're a very bad person, I'm going to take you to court, so on and so forth, really being aggressive. But sometimes the good cop is, you know, we understand things are difficult, you know, we want to work with you. If you'll start making some good faith payments, you know, even 10 or 25 or $50 a month, that'll show us that you want to work with us and we can tell the bank, hey, you're still a good client and everyone will be happy here. So sounds really positive, right? Yeah, it does. But you got to realize that you might actually be doing yourself a world of harm by doing that. Because, because it'll never end. It'll never end. <laughs> never end. Yeah, we've talked a number of times. I know our loyal listeners would know there's a statute of limitations on debts in BC. Yeah. And just for anyone who's not aware, the statute of limitations means that if you owe somebody money and you're not able to pay them, if two years goes by between your last payment um, and they haven't taken any legal action against you, they can never again take legal action against you. It's statute barred. Now, what happens is quite often you'll be a year and 10 months or a year and 11 months, all the bad cop will stop and the good cop will phone you up and say, hey, you know what, I'd love to get some partial payments here, let's work together, let's get your credit back on track, all these things like that. You make a single payment, even if it's $5, you've just reset that clock back to two years. So what's the best advice in that situation? I mean, I, I guess it depends on, on your own personal situation, but I think about... Um, you know, two years, could I handle, you know, just letting this ride for a couple of years? Maybe, right? Yeah, it's, it, everyone's situation is different. You know, I've actually been called by a collection agent once, and I, I remember these phone calls, and I remember they impacted me pretty emotionally as well. And this was, I had a rental car, we had, you know, a little fender bender, and the insurance was covering it, but there was a delay in when the insurance paid out. I couldn't get that story out of my mouth in, in 10 seconds before the gentleman and I remember. I had to refer to him as Mr. whatever his last name was, but I was Blair. So, Blair, you need to do this. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Mr. And I was, I was suddenly in, the, in this power <laughs> dynamic, uh, and I just thought, how did this guy flip it so completely? Yeah. And it's really not a fair fight. So okay. my advice in general is just don't engage. Do so not engage. Yeah, if someone's calling you, realize you're probably not going to have anything good to say to them. If you could pay the debt, you would have paid it already. You would have paid it to the bank. They're obviously sending you these letters already, and you would have paid it if you could. What's to be gained by you having a very distressing conversation with a collector where they're going to threaten things that they're probably not going to follow through on, but you're not going to sleep very well after that, maybe for weeks or months after that, because you just don't know. Okay, now here's kind of a random question. What if I then went to the bank and said, look, I'm really sorry, this is my situation, and, and dealt directly with them? Are they going to be open to that? or not open to that? Well, I definitely encourage people to try that. The first step we ask people to do is, you know, try to go to your lender and see if they will work with you. Okay. You know, if it's a case, hey, you're in between jobs for three months, you know you'll be able to make payments again, you might have a great discussion with a bank teller, with a manager or something. You might They might get you off of the collector or agree to work with you because they know the problem's going to get solved eventually. Okay. Now, if it's a case you know you're not going to be able to make good on this debt, pay it all off with interest, the bank's not going to be able to do a whole lot for you. The okay. person that's, that's going to be seeing you, usually the tools that they have is, do you need more credit or do you need a little bit of a lower interest rate um, but in terms of settling the debt for less than what you owe usually banks just don't get into that business now i know the best thing to do and i don't mean to say oh you know we need this is where we talk about coming to see you but i mean that just seems like the most logical thing to do 
it, it absolutely is, Elaine, because, you know, we're unbiased. So I'm an independent officer of the court. My job is to give independent views on, you know, the law and what protects you. And one thing that I can tell you that other people won't even tell you this exists is in the province of BC, you can say, I don't consent to collection phone calls, and they have to respect that. They have to stop calling you. So I have people come into my office, and it, it just makes their day, their life, their afternoon, whatever, when I can say, here's a letter. This is a legal letter. The next collector that calls you, you get these particulars. You don't engage. You say, I'm sending you a legal letter. I need this information. And then you document that you've sent that letter. When they continue to call, or if they continue to call, then you complain to Consumer Protection BC. They will find them. They will shut them down eventually. So there are things you can do in BC that people won't make you aware of. The collector is never going to tell you. By the way, you don't have to take this call. You can say no. (laughs) Uh, But if you come and see a trustee, we'll give you all the straight facts. Okay, so that's a really good place to start is get that off your back, off your daily routine listening to that barrage. And then and, and then take the next steps, right? Sit down with you and figure out, okay, what do you owe? How did you get to this place? What can we do? How can we figure this out? What's the best uh, step to take now? Yeah. yeah, even just sending that letter, you'd be amazed how much easier it is to deal with something that, you know, written in front of you. You know, you can see the words on the page and what they'll write on a page is a lot different than you being in a very hostile, talking down conversation where the people are threatening things that they would never write down. So stop the calls, send the letter, don't engage and get the right help when you need it. Yeah, because we know the uh, uh, getting rid of the stress or the high stress in any situation. I mean, you can start to think a little more clearly and really look at the situation and and get the help that you need to uh, to move forward. Listen, if any of this information is resonating with you and, and you think that uh, uh, you want to take some steps but you don't know how, go see Blair. Any of his, uh, they've got offices all over British Columbia, which is lovely and uh, very easy to get a hold of. I'll give you their 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. Uh, check out their website, sands-trustee.com. I tell you, there's so much good information written there that will... They'll write, uh, you know, frequently asked questions. I don't know how many pages it is, but it's... Pages and pages. It yeah. is, but it's awesome because, you know, you, you will see yourself in, in something in one place on the website as well. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Dave Jones on the line with us. He's uh, Chief Constable of the New Westminster Police Department and has been since 2011. Has a very long and varied career uh, with the uh, police department, which is terrific. So he's got such a great base of knowledge and experience and information for us. We're calling this segment Tales from the Beat, Examples of Financial Scams Over the Years. Dave, we're so happy and grateful that you can join us. I'm, I'm glad I can join you as well. That's great. So, so much good information um, that we want to give the listener uh, about financial scams, which seem to be growing in numbers in terms of what what is it trying to get at us these days, whether it be on the phone or via email. But there's a whole bunch of other areas, too, that we should pay attention to, which I uh, I think is really important. Yes, you're quite correct with that, that there is, uh, you know, quite the, I would say there's no limit as to what people will try these days in terms of separating you from your from your own money. Yeah, Dave, I wonder if we can talk through a, a couple examples, if the listeners will find it really interesting, if we can say, you know, here's a few of the types of scams that we've seen. I know in my job as a licensed insolvency trustee, I've seen, you know, various different types, whether it's a rental or romantic scam, you know, a debt relief scam quite often. Uh, what's something that you're seeing day to day that people are falling victim to? 
So, yeah, the most, thanks. The most recent one, of course, and we touched a bit on it before, was like the uh, Canadian revenue mm-hmm. scam about owing money. Um, another one that is big, and we just, we've seen really growing, is the uh, romance, the dating scams. It's almost, yeah. you know, and you've got to be very cautious about, you know, introducing or finding somebody online and then never meeting the person who's suddenly, you know, asking you for funds to send to them. Um, an unfortunate one recently for us saw up to $70,000 in funds being transferred for somebody from wow. one individual to somebody who they had never met. Yeah, and, ju- and just pausing there, so to have $70,000 of funds to transfer, this was not someone who didn't have a net worth. This was someone who obviously had built up some financial resources, and that's what kind of shocked me um, in, my, in my work, Dave, is these were sophisticated individuals that were just taken advantage of by a very long-term, kind of slow-moving con. Right. And, you know, they, the thing is, too, is that I, I'm not certain that every time when somebody's trying to con someone, they know exactly how much they have. But when they get into people, unfortunately, who are trusting, offer up personal information that just seems to come out and have the ability to either access lines of credit or have actual funds sitting in somewhere. And, you know, and quite often it touches upon, you know, our, our more elderly population um, in, you know, in the communities here. Um, another one we saw, which is almost really unique, uh, recently was there's been one that touched upon, which I call it as a, a video spying. It's almost an extortion. Mm. And what, what it has been said is, is that there's emails going around that say, we have video of you doing something inappropriate. Oh, and man. if you, if you don't pay us, then we will release this video out into, you know, into the cyberspace and we'll go after you. In fact, that hit one of the city employees recently who, mm. you know, quite right and rightly came to us and said, what about this, right? So, of course, I hate to say it, our first question is, <laughs> well, did you? <laughs> did you do this type of behaviors that are described here, right? Yeah. You, know, that, you need to be honest with us, which they clearly hadn't. And then, of course, but it's that fear, right? Because yeah. people, people start thinking, well, you know, does my laptop, has mm. someone hacked my laptop camera or video, and do they have this on me uh, in terms of it? So that's one. Another one uh, that's constantly mixed around, I call as the lost relative or the grandchild in jail. Oh, right. I've seen um, this one. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a crisis, right? That's right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the, it's the uh, you know, please don't tell my, you know, please don't tell, you know, hey, hi, grandma, it's so-and-so. And, and the issue comes is that there's so much information that people post into different social media sites that it doesn't take, isn't hard to sometimes figure out the name of a grandchild and the grandparent to actually, you know, be able to pull it on somebody and, and be a bit more personal. And, you know, when they don't tell mom and dad, but I need money to get out of jail and you need to send the money to me, right, and at this, you know, and this, of course, I always say the suspicious thing is it's a wire transfer to another wire transfer, you know, it's not you need to send money to the police department or the justice mm. center. You need to send money to this wire transfer place. Um, we see, you know, and picking on some of the more, I say, you know, unique ones at times is, um, you know, other than the lost relative, we see the phishing in terms of it, like online, using these government sites. And yeah, so the, can you describe the, the phishing? So that's you receive an email, it yeah. looks legitimate, but, yeah. you know, someone has essentially taken over the identity, and if you click through it, you're not clicking through to who you think? That's right. So the phishing ones are somebody who gets access to email lists and then starts, or just randomly starts firing out emails. And we used to see these, we would call them the, the oil scams in the past. You know, I've inherited, I have all this money, mm. I'm in a foreign country, and I need your help to get the money out of the country type thing. 
And so those continue. And although, you know, that story gets told, that is now changed. And people are now saying, well, I'm with this company, you owe us money, um, or something's changed. Um, I use an example, and I would say is that, you know, uh, a television provider type company the other day even emailed myself and the police department saying, you need to go online and update your account because Mm. you're behind in arrears. And that was sent to my work email. Again. <laughs> and I don't think the mayor wants to know that I've got satellite TV in my office, I think, right? So not having it was easy for me to say, I don't have anything at this email. like this, So I could see it's a scam. But it looks really legit. It's right. using the company's brand, the company's logo, and that. And those are the ones that we still see are, are going out there. And of course, uh, you know, other ones that we see and people have to be cautious about, I call it the online either rental bookings and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, you can hear those horror stories of like 12 people renting the same suite that nobody, right. that the person never even owned, yes. right? And so when you've got this like low vacancy rate and uh, you got people out there looking for a place to live and are happy to find a place that's really reasonable until, like I say, till six moving trucks show up on the same day and oh, the wow. owner and the owner's in the place going... This isn't for rent. Exactly. Right? And they've all paid like $2,000 yeah. just to get an opportunity to get in to pay rent for the first time. or yeah. Right. And and it's not just limited here. You know, we were just dealing with one, too, where it's uh, uh, online almost called vacation rentals, right? Yes. And, uh, and, and, and the caution I always use with people is, or we use is that, you know, there are very legitimate companies out there that you, you should, you know, you, that you should feel comfortable using that are well-established and good records as opposed to, and I don't mean to ever knock new startups or people are doing it, but you need to be a bit, lot more diligent in checking them out before you start sending them large sums of money in advance. Um, we just have another one that hit our offices, which is about $10,000 worth of vacation rentals in, in another country, which leaves it very difficult for us oh, to even wow. conduct an investigation because it, it, this transaction occurred overseas. Right. You know, how, how we're going to track someone down who doesn't exist in reality, it becomes very challenging. But a, but a caution to that person was, and talking to them was, if they had done a little bit of research online, it didn't take much using a search to find that this company, there is lots of conversation in the internet about this company doing this and being involved in this type of behavior. So um, there are ways for people to, to be certain about what they're doing. And, and we've always said, if it sounds too good, then it's probably not real, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, is there a is there a place, or you know, would you recommend? So, I'm I'm concerned about uh, any of the ones that we talked about. Is there like a set of criteria that you think is really important for people, like one, two, and three, to make sure they do before they sign on or send the money? Yeah. Or, yeah, what is so, it? So, the first thing is, if anyone's asking you to send them money, you should stop. Right? You should you should not do it on the basis of them contacting you. You should always, if you believe there might be some legitimacy to it, you should look it up yourself. Okay. In other words, don't ask for a phone number or contact from them or right. reply to the email provided. You should look it up yourself. In Independent. Terms of it. Okay. Independently. Second of all, depending on whether you feel comfortable with neighbors or family or friends, or if not, call the police department and ask them if they've had issues with this, right? And uh, we do have people who will call in and ask about even today's world, the CRA scam. And we're more than happy to tell them that this is a scam that's going on, right? And for any 
CRA people who didn't get their money back, um, then they can call us, right, in terms of it. But yeah. but we are very, you know, clear. And there are online centers, like the Canadian Anti-Fraud online as well, too, the center, the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, Great. that can give you advice and even take in the information that you've got who try to monitor the variety of scams and things that are going on throughout the country. Excellent. We've been talking with Dave Jones, Chief Constable of the New Westminster Police Department, with some great information on financial scams and how to avoid them. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now, Richard Moxley, a lead credit mentor. I love that title. Uh, Richard's got a really interesting background. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that I find super fascinating about you. First of all, you're an, you're an author. You've written a great book. It's called The Nine Rules of Credit, How to Start, Rebuild, and Always Maintain Great Credit. Um, you're a guy that's in demand, speaking all over the country. Uh, you're, you get published in the Globe and Mail. You've been on CBC Market Report and Global TV locally and nationally. You got a Financial Literary Leader Award for 2015-2016. And like I say, you travel all over and talk about it. You're married. You live in Calgary. We're just so happy to have you on the show, Richard. Well, thank you for having me. Really great. So um, I know like credit and credit rating and the rules of credit, that's your thing. That's what you know the most about. Um, what are the What are the biggest What are the biggest questions or what are the biggest things that you see or you hear from people about their credit or credit in general? So one of the the best things to start off with, and I hope all your listeners are sitting down right now. Hopefully they're not driving, or maybe they probably are driving, but uh, hopefully (laughs) it doesn't cause any accidents. But one of the biggest things that misconceptions just people aren't aware of is that the credit score that you have access to as a consumer is not the score that a bank or lender uses. Hmm. And I know that sounds really backwards. Uh, So Equifax and TransUnion, they have this kind of funny game where they give consumers one score, so the one that you're paying for is is different than what the banks are using, which causes a lot of confusion. Is it better or worse? Is it better or worse, Richard? That's what I want to know. Uh, you, you sound like we're talking about relationships here, <laughs> for better or for worse. But um, it really, it it has it, it really depends. Okay. So it, it's the exact same information that you're seeing, but the scoring metrics that they're using to score you are completely different. Hmm. And so it there's a lot of myths out there and misunderstandings about credit. One because the scoring algorithm has recently been changed a lot with Equifax in the last couple of years. And TransUnion and Equifax are always updating their score when when they see a need. And then the other thing that throws everything out of balance and a lot of people don't understand is that even though certain banks will use Equifax or TransUnion or both, the score that the banks have is generally a customized version of what the Equifax and TransUnion credit reports are. 
So even if you're seeing the bank version, the same score that Equifax is sending to TD or the, the same score that RBC is, or uh, TransUnion is sending to RBC, that's not what the rep that is sitting across from you is seeing. And so it, it, it comes where this, this fascination that, that we have as a society with this score is really misplaced. And so I, when I wrote the book, my whole passion, my whole goal is to help Canadians get away from this score that's really a moving target and focus on actionable, simple steps that you can take in order to always make sure that you have good credit and stop worrying about what your score is doing because that's, there's no way that you can know what your score really is. And I think that's just so fascinating, Richard, because you see all these ads, you know, for monthly credit monitoring and get your free credit score. Um, and, you know, I, I yell at the TV, it's meaningless. <laughs> but, but now yeah. I, I can tell the listeners. You, you and me both, yes. we're both yelling and throwing things at the TV. Yeah, yeah so, so it's fascinating. So the actual score that you can get, it's, you know, it doesn't tell you whether the bank is actually going to approve you or not, because they might be looking at different factors and you might be, you know, just playing a different game altogether. Exactly. And and you, there's a lot of free credit re- websites that are out there and, and are advertising that have some have come over from the states but this this idea this fascination with the credit score this mystical score that controls our life uh, unfortunately is this hype is is really misplaced and people are spending a lot of time and effort and money that's unfortunately wasted uh, you could read my book and understand more than you would probably ever want to know about the credit score as opposed to trying to chase this score. Okay, so what do I use then? If I really want to know um, or to see how I'm doing in relation to others or uh, sort of in the big picture, how do I, how do, I do that? So that's, that's where these actionable steps come in and, and the information, you got to be careful because we get inundated with American information that is not applicable here in in Canada and and the banks obviously use different metrics as well so you got to make sure that it's actually information and stuff that's used by the banks uh, but I'll give you an example of one that is another example of how backwards thinking some of these what I call rules of credit or some of these actionable steps that that need to be understood by Canadians and so one of them is you have to be very, very careful about closing or paying off your your debt. And I know that sounds really backwards. We would think that paying off a car loan would show that we're responsible, that we're in control of our finances. But what we don't understand as a community or society, sorry about that, um, so as a society is that the the, the, one of the biggest contributing factors to the score is how long you have had an account or a credit card or a loan open. And the minute that you pay it off, it becomes old, good information instead of good, current information. Yeah, Richard, and so the, if, that, that surprised me so much when I learned that because you hear so many people are counseled. Do you want to get a mortgage? Well, go and you know clear off all of your your credit. They don't want to see that you've got too many open lines. You know, maybe get down to a card just to show hey you, you can manage your credit. But that's completely the wrong advice. Exactly, and and so we want to be very cautious about these things and and why I'm passionate about helping the Canadians understand 
exactly how that works because, I'll, you know, having a history in mortgage financing for eight years, I saw it all the time. People would pay off their loans and then they'd come and they'd be all excited. I'm ready for a mortgage. You know, I, I don't have any monthly responsibilities. And then I would have to be the bearer of bad news to let them know that, well, unfortunately, you've just kind of shot yourself in the foot and and we're going to have to charge you higher interest rates because of that, because now the banks see that as you don't have any good current credit or you have limited current credit and all of a sudden your scores dropped 150 points, which puts your benchmark underneath what the banks want to see. So just by keeping those accounts open, that person could have had, you know, the, the rates that they wanted, the terms that they wanted. They, they actually, you know, really did something counterproductive thinking they were doing the exactly. right thing. Yeah, Exactly. And so one of the, the advices, I know a lot of the, the listeners are saying, okay, now what am I supposed to do? Uh, one of the biggest things other than, uh, obviously, I hope you get educated with credit, uh, regardless of whether it's by, by the book or, or the credit TV, the stuff that I do online, but you you should always talk to a professional in the industry and ask them. Before you do anything major with your finances, ask them. Ask the mortgage broker or the, the mortgage specialist, what do I need to do? What do I need to avoid? Make sure you're talking to someone that has been around for a while and can actually guide you through that so that you avoid some of these major mistakes that you'll end up regretting. So is there sort of a, a rule of thumb to go by, Richard, if I didn't talk to some, like I'm talking to you, I sort of, yep. I think of you as pretty much an expert on this. Yep. What are some of the things that I could do uh, that would put me in good stead before I make that big purchase or that go into a mortgage or, you know, whatever that step is? So one of the, the things that banks really like to see and they really take an interest in is what you're doing with your revolving credits. Now, revolving credit is anything to do with your credit card. Um, you can look at it with lines of credit, but credit cards are really what banks like to see on a credit report because that's what people mess up the most. And so if you are over leveraged or if you are missing payments or not making your minimum payments or you know, even if it's a, just a $15 missed payment, it just shows that you're not on top of your finances and that shows the lender they can predict the chances of you defaulting on some kind of loan or mortgage much easier than any other type of credit. Because most credit, like a loan, regardless of what kind of loan, essentially all you have to do is have enough money in the bank account and that should be paid off. Now that's not always easy to do, <laughs> but regardless, it's pretty simple. Where a credit card, there's temptation, There's you know, there's the minimum payments, uh, there's utilization, there's all these things that the bank is looking at. And so having at least two credit cards mm -hmm. that are well established and maintained very well, that puts you above and beyond the majority of people out there. So having a credit card or a couple of credit cards, keeping it at a zero balance or at least a paid off balance monthly, yep. that's going to put me in better stead than than not having them, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, and you don't necessarily have to have them paid off. I mean, it, it is financially much better. You know, uh, it's not very good financial principles to be paying 18 or 26% on, on a balance, but technically you don't have to have them completely paid off, but the lower balances are extremely important when it comes to your credit. Okay. 
So, Richard, we've just got about a couple minutes left here. Um, I wonder if you can talk about the clients that I see to a person. Everybody is concerned about the impact of a bankruptcy or a proposal if they have to restructure their debts. Are they ever going to get credit again? Are they untouchable? Does it take seven years? Um, you know, obviously, I can reassure people from what I've seen, but can you give me some of the background here? You know, what's the impact of a bankruptcy or a proposal, and how can people recover and how quickly? That's a great conversation to be having, and it's very, very misunderstood, unfortunately. So, unfortunately, people see themselves uh, as finite, or their credit as finite, and because they were irresponsible or had some issues in the past, they kind of assume that they're, they've got this label of bad credit, and they're going to be messed up continually. And a lot of people just kind of put their head in the sand because they're just afraid of what someone's going to tell them. The good news and one of the best parts of what I do is give people hope. And and one of the, the best things that I learned in the mortgage industry was that essentially two years from discharge of any kind of debt program, you can get back to best rates and best terms. Wow. So even though it stays on your credit report for six years yeah. in BC, um, that's okay within two years of discharge, you can still qualify for best rates, best terms, minimum down payments, CMHC insured or whoever, and and move on with life. Yeah, and I, and I tell clients that two to three year clock and they, they're just incredibly you know happy about that. It's not a life sentence, you recover quicker than exactly. you, you ever did. Yep. I was just going to say, uh, in wrapping up, uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. It's been great. Uh, Pick up his book, The Nine Rules of Credit, How to Start, Rebuild, and Always Maintain Great Credit. Richard's on Twitter. His uh, handle is Average Joe. What is it? Average Joe Book? Is that what it is? Yes. Richard Richard Moxley at Average Joe Book, also host of Credit TV. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with uh, with us right now is Stuart Zuckerman and his practice primarily in the area of family law and has been for the past almost 30 years. So in in addition to Stuart's litigation practice, he's also an accredited family law mediator, uh, participates in the collaborative divorce process. And Stuart, I'm pretty sure we could have an interview just on the collaborative uh, divorce process alone, but but we don't get that. We're uh, going to talk about, um, and this is interesting, if you're in the situation where you sense or can feel that your relationship or marriage, depending on the on your situation is breaking down uh, the kinds of things that you need to pay attention to. Yeah, so Stuart, we, we were hoping, um, you know, when someone's thinking that their relationship is going to break down, you know, sometimes there's a lot of emotion and people tend to take action sometimes, you know, a little bit rashly and maybe not considering the broader impact. So I wonder if you can share from your experience, because I've definitely seen it in my experience, I've seen both partners, you know, just start, suddenly stop caring about finances and start to run up charges on credit cards and then, you know, we, we've got to deal with that as a trustee here. But what have you seen in terms of pitfalls when a relationship relationship is breaking down, what are the things to really not do that's going to hurt you later on? Sure. Well, for just the first thing that I would say is the thing to do if you sense your relationship is, is coming to an end or near an end would be to gather as much documentation as you can. That is, make photocopies or take pictures with your phone of, of uh, 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 bank 
card, bank statements, of uh, credit card bills, of uh, any financial piece of information, the, the home title, any documents at home um, that would, uh, for financial disclosure purposes, because some people just don't disclose their finances uh, the way they should. And so getting that information off the top uh, will help uh, secure uh, a more comp- comprehensive solution or settlement at the end. But in terms of pitfalls, there's, there's a lot of pitfalls that, that, that people make. You know, a very common situation is a uh, husband and wife get into a fight, let's call them Mary and John. Um, John get, Mary calls the police. Police come and remove John from the home, and a, and a, a peace bond is issued where John is not allowed to return to the home. Um, I can tell you, in 29 years of practice, I've seen the Johns in these situations very often uh, will uh, respond by calling BC Hydro and cutting off the hydro, wow. calling uh, uh, Fordis Gas, calling cutting off the gas, cutting off the cable and the internet to the home. They figure, I'm not allowed in the home, I'm not going to pay the bills anymore. And often they were the breadwinner in the home or the major income earner, and the, the spouse, Mary, may have a much lower income or no income um, and may have kids at home, and I've seen guys do that regardless. And I can tell you when people, when if I have a woman come in to my office and I've had this many times crying in the chair opposite me saying my husband cut off the hydro and the cable, I smile and I say, he's given you the greatest gift you could ask for because when I go to court next week and I tell a judge that John cut off the hydro and the, and the cable and the internet for the, when the wife and kids are at home, the judge is going to bend over backwards and say, Mr. Zuckerman, what can I do for you? What do you want me to order? And it's going to help me get you know, higher support numbers and get, get orders that are going to be against the husband. So, so that's a big pitfall for people who, who make that mistake of cutting off hydro cable cutting off bank accounts, taking money out of bank accounts and, and maybe depositing it into their mother's account or their sister's account because they think they're going to hide the money for division later. That's the worst thing you could do because when I cross-examine that person at a trial later about why they pulled the money out of their account and put it into their sister's name, the, the only answer is that they were trying to hide it from their wife. And now the judge will say this person lacks complete credibility on their financial disclosure and you might get an order where all of the disclosed assets go to one party because the judge believes that there are more value in hidden assets than there are in disclosed assets. And there's many cases where that has occurred. So, so it's very important to to not uh, hide assets, to not switch assets over to other. Uh, everything needs to be disclosed. Full and frank financial disclosure is the cornerstone of of family law. And we've had cases. There's a case called Kuna and Kuna where the court the court of appeal said that the the non disclosure of of uh, finances is the cancer um, on matrimonial litigation. And so the courts have a lot of power to cure that cancer, um, including giving everything that has been disclosed to the not to the to the innocent spouse so it's a big mistake to hide those things okay so let's let's do the flip side of that then Mary and John are smart intelligent bright caring thoughtful people uh, the children are at home with one of them and uh, and and yet they know that the marriage is breaking down or the relationships breaking down what are the steps to take in that situation so so everybody um, I mean it's a difficult situation doesn't come out a winner because this is sad regardless but that that isn't heard in the process Right. So, so the first thing, I mean, as as a divorce lawyer, we're mandated under the Divorce Act to inform clients about the existence of marriage counselors and their services. So, we do recommend people speak to a marriage counselor if they think they might be able to repair the relationship. But assuming that they've already gone past that and they can't repair the relationship, um, that, that's the time when it's they should both be going out and talking to a lawyer, bringing to the lawyer all of the information about their finances, and trying to negotiate or get advice about negotiating a fair and reasonable uh, separation agreement 
rather than litigating. So instead of starting a divorce proceeding, you ask your lawyer, you say, look, I want to, I want to divorce from, I want to divorce and separate from my spouse, but I'd like to do it by way of an agreement. I want to stay out of court. And, and then you give all the information to the lawyer, then the lawyer is able to say, well, this is what your rights and your entitlements are in terms of those assets. This is how the court would divide those assets. So let's write a letter to John, um, and say, you know, dear John, here's what we propose for a settlement, a separation agreement. And if John then goes to his lawyer and gets advice, and the lawyer says, yes, this is pretty much what's going to happen. This is the correct level of child support. This is the correct level of spousal support. We might negotiate the duration of spousal support or the quantum, the amount of spousal support, um, how long it's going to last, etc. Uh, and you put all the, you write all those things up in an agreement. And at a separation agreement, if you come, if a client comes to me and they and they know uh, after my first meeting exactly what they want to do in terms of a separation agreement, we can do that for as little as about uh, $3,500 from start to finish when we're not involved in extensive negotiations with the other party. When you're negotiating, that will add because we charge for the hours that are spent. So negotiating adds more cost to the to the bottom line. But but the, a basic separation agreement uh, prepared by a lawyer is about 3500 bucks. Uh, an uncontested divorce, if you just wanted a divorce order that, that doesn't deal with any assets, your children just says well, the parties are divorced, uh, that can be done for as little as $1,500. On the other end of the scale, if you went to court... I was going to ask you that. These sound like bargains compared to, you know, an average rate in a court, right? <laughs> yes, I, I, I would say, you know, in my experience, most uh, trials last at least five days uh, in Supreme Court. And when you're in court, you only really get four hours and 15 minutes in front of the judge um, every day because there's breaks when you're in court. So it's not a lot of time in five days. But in five days, you could do a typical divorce case. And that that would cost with a senior lawyer probably anywhere from eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, with a junior wow. lawyer somewhere from forty to sixty thousand dollars to prepare for and conduct those five days of trial. So, for a one-week trial, you you could be in the six figures, and I I know it's real because I've seen it. I've seen uh, both sides, husbands and wives, comes in with you know big legal bills that essentially they they've you know dissipated a bunch of family assets, um, you know, just by fighting and not you know trying to make an agreement early on. There may be other factors there, but yeah, the costs really do escalate quickly. The, the, the last five-day trial I did was eight, my bill was eighty-nine thousand dollars. So, I'm, and I heard that the opposing lawyer's bill was something like one hundred and twenty thousand. So, it is you know a, tr- a one-week trial is easily close to six. With, with a senior lawyer, I mean, I'm a lawyer with 29 years experience. I have eight lawyers at my firm that are junior to me. So, you know, if you've hired one of our first year or fifth year lawyers who's directed by me, you're, you're, it's a much lower expense, less than half of the cost for, for a senior lawyer. Stuart, have you got, and, and we're just sort of, we've got like about a minute and a half or so to go. I was curious about the percentage. Is there a clear percentage in your mind of, of what uh, the choice people are making now, like uh, a trial versus a uh, figure? out uh, more collaboratively to yeah, well, yeah everybody is if you have a good lawyer the lawyer will explain well in advance what the costs of a trial are and when you factor in those costs of a trial that helps in the settlement because you know even if you're getting for example if someone made an offer to settle on the other side and it's 50,000 less than you're entitled to but I'm going to charge you a hundred thousand to run a trial I yeah. might say to you you know you might be better off taking their offer um, at the at the lower number rather than paying me a hundred thousand to end up with you know fifty thousand more you're not going to net the same so um, so 
the, the reality is that about 95% of cases settle without going to trial. I had a week trial scheduled for this very week that I'm sitting here, and we settled on Friday afternoon at 6 p.m. Um, so uh, with negotiations going back and forth, uh, sure. we finally put a deadline on our last offer on Friday afternoon at 4. We said if you don't accept it by 6, we're, we're going to proceed to trial, and they accepted our offer by 6 o'clock. So, so, and that happens in, in 95% of cases that people settle. I've actually, in my years of experience, I've settled on the courthouse doors at, right outside the courtroom when we were about to go in at 10 o'clock in the morning. I've had the other lawyer pull me aside and make an offer that my client has accepted. So, so people try to avoid trial and, and settle before trial because of the cost of a trial. If you want to get a hold of Stuart, I'll give you his website. It's www.zuckermanlaw.ca. You're listening to... Oh, Zuckerman. So, oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, no C. I thought, what? What? It's not Dart C-A? Yeah, no C in Zuckerman. Z-U-K-E-R, manlaw.ca. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.